0: As, as you get seated, if you've got a Bible, whether that's in a hard copy or you've got one uh, in a digital format, and you want to open up to the book of Haggai, uh, we finished in Zephaniah last week, and so we're moving into Haggai. If you got familiar with where Zephaniah was in your Bible over the last six weeks or so, Haggai is just the next book. If you're unfamiliar with where either one of those are, and you go to Matthew and you can find the start of the New Testament, Haggai is just a few pages backward into the Old Testament. Uh, While you get settled in, I'm going to pray, and then we'll get started. God, thanks for this morning, Lord, for the chance as a church for us to gather together as a family, Lord, as a collective body of believers who are united under the banner of the cross and who are united by your grace, Lord. God, for us to be able to stand alongside families in our church, And to say that being the body of Christ to us is more than just sharing a room together for an hour or an hour and a half on Sunday mornings, but that that actually means something. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit, Lord, would really unite us together. God, that we would be united together in relationship. God, that we'd be united together in worship, that we would be united together in Service to the gospel and the proclamation of the truth of the cross, Lord, that we would be truly knit together as the body of Christ. And God, that that would play itself out this morning. God, I know that there are people in this room today who came in here this morning and their hearts are heavy or they're in seasons of grief and mourning. Lord, as the body of Christ, would we be sensitive to that? Lord, there are others who came in here this morning and they're in seasons of joy and celebration and gladness. And when we come alongside them in celebrating and rejoicing with those who rejoice, but also weeping with those who weep, because that's what it is to be the body of Christ. God, I pray that as we open your word, as we sing uh, more, God, as we interact in relationship with one another, God, would we do all those things to the glory of the gospel. God, would Jesus be the biggest thing in this room this morning, but would Jesus be the biggest thing in this church when we gather and also when we scatter. Lord, we pray in his matchless name. Amen. Uh, In 1964, it was actually in late March of 1964, a murder occurred on the streets of New York City. The victim's name was Kitty Genovese. 38 people witnessed it happen over a period of about 90 minutes. In the wee hours of the morning, Kitty got off of work and she drove herself home and she was followed to her apartment. And when she got to her apartment and got out of her car, the man who had followed her home got out of his car and he stabbed her. And 38 people watched as over a period of 90 minutes, Kitty lay on the street of New York and this man actually returned two separate times in order to make sure that she was dead. Multiple people attempted to call the police. No one did anything to try to stop what was taking place down on the street below. That murder led to two psychologists undertaking a pretty large study in which gave rise to what we today call the bystander effect. That when there are a group of people assembled and something happens, the more people gathered, the less likely it is that anybody will intervene in order to stop that thing. If one person is present when a crime is committed, there's an 85% chance that that one person will intervene in order to try to stop it. If two people are present when a crime is committed, the chance that either one of those two people does anything to try to intervene drops to 62%. If five people are present when a crime is committed, the odds that any of the five do anything to try to stop what's taking place drops to just below 20%. And as more people are present the likelihood that anyone does anything continues to decrease. In fact, in our world today, very different from 1964, but today, oftentimes what happens when a crime is being committed is that no one does anything to try to stop it, but instead everybody pulls out their cell phone in order to try to record it. The bystander effect. There's something about a large crowd of people that creates within us a sense of indifference. In the case of Kitty Genovese, that indifference was literally deadly for her. At the very least, indifference completely stifles any sort of action within us. As we jump into the book of Haggai, Haggai is going to point out something in his people at the time in Jerusalem, but also for us today that's slightly different than what Zephaniah was pointing out. Zephaniah called his people to reckon with, and by extension forces us to reckon with, the reality of idolatry in our lives. What do we worship in the place of God? Haggai is going to call his people, and by extension, force us to reckon with the reality of indifference in our lives. Both idolatry and indifference are pervasive within the church today, and so it's poignant for us to consider and to deal with both of those issues within our hearts. It's also worth pointing out right from the start that the outcome in Haggai is different than the outcome in Zephaniah. Like most Old Testament prophets, Zephaniah was sent by the Lord to speak to the Lord's people, and he did that faithfully, and it changed nothing. They didn't repent. They didn't return to the Lord in obedience. Haggai, on the other hand, and just a couple of other Old Testament prophets are used by the Lord to actually bring about change in the hearts and the lives of his people. The book of Haggai is going to record the Lord's message to the people in Jerusalem, and it's going to effect change within their behavior, and within their hearts. As we jump into this, I want to give some really important context to Haggai, because if you've been with us over six weeks as we work through Zephaniah, it will feel like in your Bible we just flipped one page. In my Bible, that's all all I did was turn over the next page, and there was Haggai. In your Bible, it might be that Zephaniah ends on the left side, and the right side of the spread starts Haggai. But when you make that jump, From the book of Zephaniah to the book of Haggai, you've launched 110 years forward in history. You've moved from 630 B.C. or so to 520 B.C. And what you've jumped over is a significant period of Old Testament history, but also a significant period of world history. In that time, you've gone from the very moments before the Israelite exile by Babylon to the moments right after the Israelite exile, you've seen a change in world power. The Babylonians, led by Nebuchadnezzar, are the ones who swept into Jerusalem and carried the Israelites into exile. But by the time the Israelite people come back, it's the Persian Empire that is the dominant force in the world, led by King Cyrus. You've jumped over 50 to 70 years of, depending on when you start and end the clock on that, of time where the Israelite people were not able to live in Jerusalem. They weren't able to live in their promised land. But then when Persia conquers Babylon, King Cyrus allows 50,000 people, led by a man named Zerubbabel, to return to their home. The first chapters of the book of Ezra contain the story of that incredible moment, and here's what happens when they got there. The moment was one of absolute joy. They get to go back to Jerusalem, and the Israelites begin pledging money and resources to rebuilding the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. When Babylon had come in with their massive armies, they completely destroyed that temple. And one of the first things that the Israelites do when they get to go back is that they begin immediately pledging resources to rebuild this temple. They offer sacrifices on the place where the temple is going to be rebuilt. They assign overseers and workers who immediately set to the task. And by 536 BC, the foundation of the temple has been laid, and the moment is completely overwhelming. This is from Ezra chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. You don't need to flip. I'll put it up on the screens. When the builders had laid the foundation of the Lord's temple, the priests, dressed in their robes and holding trumpets, and the Levites, holding cymbals, took their positions to praise the Lord as as King David of Israel had instructed. They sang with praise and thanksgiving to the Lord, for he is good, his faithful love to Israel endures forever. Then all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the Lord's house had been laid. And then something happens. In Ezra chapter 4, we're told that just shortly after this moment of praising and rejoicing, the work on the temple completely stops. For 16 years, they do nothing beyond the foundation of the temple. And that is where the prophet Haggai enters into the scene. Tradition holds that Haggai was 70 or 80 years old when his prophetic ministry in Jerusalem began. Most think that he lived the bulk of his life in that Babylonian uh, captivity, but that he was actually a resident of Jerusalem before the exile began. And so he had seen the temple of the Lord in all of its splendor, in all of its glory, and then the Lord uses him in order to try to recaptivate the hearts and the imaginations of the people for rebuilding a new temple in Jerusalem. What the book contains are four sermons. Four sermons that have essentially the exact same message, that the Israelite people need to shed their indifference, shake off their apathy, and finish what they've started. Interestingly, we can pinpoint exactly when these four sermons happened. King Darius, verse 1 is going to tell us, is now the king of Persia. It's no longer King Cyrus. Uh, King Darius took over in 521, and we're told that in the second year of his reign, so 520, Zerubbabel and, uh, is communicated to through Haggai from the Lord. That's what's going to happen in the book of Haggai. In fact, we can get even more specific than that because at the start of each of the four sermons that Haggai is going to preach, we get specific dates, and I'm not going to go into all the differences between the lunar calendar of today and what was used at the time, but we can actually pinpoint that the four sermons that Haggai gave happened on August 29th, September 21st, October 17th, and December 18th of 520 BC. Why does that matter? Because this is a real thing. This isn't an analogy. It's not a parable. This is a real person who spoke real words to other real people at a real time in history, and the dates are given in order to help prove that this is not made up. These were actual events. Haggai chapter 1 verses 1 through 11 record what is the first of four sermons that take place during this book. I'm just going to read it uh, beginning to end here. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. The Lord of armies says this, These people say the time has not come for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. The word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it time for you yourselves to live in paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, the Lord of the armies says this Think carefully about your ways. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough to be satisfied. You drink, but never enough to be happy. You put on clothes, but never have enough to get warm. The wage earner puts his wages into a bag with a hole in it. The Lord of armies says this Think carefully about your ways. Go up into the hills, bring down lumber, and build the house, and I will be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. You expected much, but then it amounted to little. When you brought the harvest to your house, I ruined it. Why? This is the declaration of the Lord of armies, because my house still lies in ruins while each of you is busy with his own house. So on your account, the skies have withheld the dew and the land its crops. I have summoned a drought on the, uh, on the fields and on the hills, on the grain, new wine, fresh oil, and whatever the ground yields, on man and animal, and on all that your hands produce. That is the word of the Lord through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel the governor in Jerusalem. I want to direct our attention to two items that I hope, as we were reading, just even to your ears, should have stood out. The first is this. The word house is used seven times in 11 verses here. Four of those are about the house of the Lord, the temple, that it's not time to rebuild it yet, that it lies in ruins, that there's a foundation, but nothing else. Three of the times that the word house is used, it's used about the literal homes of the Israelite people. We're told in verse 4 that those homes are paneled. Is it a time for you yourselves to live in your paneled houses while this house, the house of the Lord, lies in ruins? That word paneled literally means well-appointed or finely furnished. It can also mean that it's roofed, it's covered. The gist is this. The Israelite people have been busy with their houses, tending to them, taking care of them, building them, upgrading them, DIY projects galore, Pinterest boards dedicated to them. They've been consumed with that task. They are finely furnished, well appointed. Literally, those houses have a roof, while the temple of the Lord over here is just a foundation. Wide open. Weeds growing up through the stones. 16 years worth of time where nothing has happened over there. When it rains, it rains right into the place where we're supposed to be offering sacrifices. You've been busy with your houses, and you've been indifferent, passive, about the Lord's house. A second thing that should have jumped out as we read through there is that the Lord is referred to throughout the book of Haggai as the Lord of Armies. Your text might say Lord of Hosts. The phrase there in Hebrew is Yahweh Saba. Yahweh being the covenant name that the Lord had given the Israelite people with which to address him. And Saba meaning hosts or armies. What's being conveyed here is that the Lord has invincible might and power and greatness, that his glory surpasses everything. It speaks to his sovereignty and control because the hosts of heaven, all of the angels, fall under his command. He is the Lord of All of the heavenly realms. You could even lump in all of the evil spiritual beings. The hosts of heaven bow down to Yahweh Saba. He is Lord over them. That phrase is used 12 times in Haggai. It's used 265 times in the Old Testament as a whole. And it's here in these 11 verses four times this morning. It's supposed to underscore the absurdity of the Israelites' indifference. Let me just take an illustration from the military. Is a person in the military indifferent toward their commander? Absolutely not. You wouldn't be long for the military if that were the case. Now, take that a step up, or actually a lot of steps up the chain. If you're in a military encampment somewhere and a five-star general walks in and you are passive and indifferent, you do so at your own peril. Your career is about to be cut very, very short. That kind of illustration is what Yahweh Saba is supposed to uh, impress upon the Israelite people. How could you be indifferent about the Lord who literally rules over the hosts of everything spiritual and everything physical that you see around you? How could you be passive about His house And the place where he longs to dwell in his land with his people and yet be really committed to making sure that your new office is up to date with the best technology. That's what Haggai is saying to the Israelite people. Juxtapose those two things. The nature and character of a God who is Yahweh Saba, the Lord of armies, next to the reality of the Israelites being indifferent and passive toward him. That's what Haggai wants to point out. This is absurd. Your indifference makes absolutely no sense. As we've been walking through Zephaniah and Haggai, these minor prophets, we've been pointing out major truth about the Lord. And then we've been asking ourselves, what does this text tell us about the gospel? And what does this tell us about how it is that we are supposed to live? So here's the big major truth about who the Lord is. He is worthy. That's what Haggai wants his people to understand. The Lord is worthy, and you better not forget it. The simple reality of who He is and His character and in His power and His sovereignty and His omnipotence make Him worthy, infinitely worthy. And that worth ought to drive why you do, what you do, when you do it, how you do it, and the motivation that underlies the manner and the reason for which you do it. The Israelites understood that when they first came back to Jerusalem. They came back to their land, and they immediately started on that temple because their idolatry got them booted from Jerusalem, and now they were going to get it right. We're going to go back there, and we're going to put in place the actual location where we are to worship the Lord above all other things, and they got that, and then something happens. Ezra chapter 4 said that there was some outside pressure from nations that surrounded Jerusalem that led them to initially stop their work on the temple. That was the start of the reason. But then for 16 years, what happens? Life happens, right? You know how that goes. Your career needs attention. Your calendar fills up. The kids have places they need to be. You've got some sort of like side hustle that demands a little bit of your energy. We all deserve a hobby or two, right? And those things take time. And before you know it, you've just kind of resigned yourself to making it through the days and just existing, Monday to Tuesday, Tuesday to Wednesday. And maybe your heart and your mouth wouldn't say it, but your life starts to scream out that you've become passive and indifferent about the things of God. You give a whole lot of attention to the things of the world, your home, your career, your bank account, your family, and none of those are bad things. Those are all good things, but they become a problem when our passion for those comes at the expense of our passion for the Lord. That's what's happening in Jerusalem. And the Lord who is worthy is completely uninterested in our passive indifference. He wants nothing to do with it. Think Revelation three sixteen to 18. That's maybe one of the most popular passages out of the book of Revelation. John is... Receiving a vision, and it's the literal words of Jesus to the churches of that day. And about one of those churches, Jesus says, You are neither hot nor cold. You are lukewarm. And what does he say that the Lord is going to do with that lukewarm? He's going to spit it out of his mouth. The literal word there is vomit. The Lord wants nothing to do with it. He is completely uninterested in our passive Indifference, And he's totally unmoved by whatever excuses we might have for it. Passive indifference kills faith-filled action. It totally squashes our faith-filled obedience to the Lord. And so instead, we get driven in other directions. We forget or we cast aside the commitments that we wanted to make in our relationship with the Lord. That reading plan in Scripture stops. Your discipleship relationship wanes. Your vigor for prayer ceases. Your energy in combating sin within yourself starts to dip. All of a sudden, there's no drive toward evangelism. Your participation at church is about convenience rather than commitment. This happens when indifference takes over. The things of the Lord start to mean very little To us. And so it squashes our faith filled action and our obedience, but it also kills any sort of passionate devotion that exists within us. Pretty soon we stop making commitments altogether. For the Israelite people, the foundation of the temple just sat there. Weeds grow up around it. Maybe animals just start wandering through this empty foundation in the middle of a city. And all the while, these Well-furnished houses start to spring up all through the city. For us today, the same thing happens. We stop moving forward. We kind of just passively resign ourselves to navigating the daily demands of life, content with knowing that Jesus is there among us because we received His grace and placed our faith in Him. But if you were to look around, we would say to ourselves, where's the passion? The Lord's house lies in ruins. And so the Lord who is worthy is worthy of passionate devotion. That moment from Ezra chapter 3, that's what the Lord is worthy of. A collection of whatever we have to give to Him. Sacrifices made in His honor. Priests in their finest temple clothes with their trumpets. Levites with their simple symbol, symbols. People gathered together, lifting their voices in praise to the Lord. The elders among those folks who had been in Jerusalem before the exile, probably in tears of praise and adoration because of what they're witnessing and the magnitude of that moment. That's what the Lord is worthy of, passionate devotion. He's also worthy of being our highest priority. We can get to our houses later. That's Haggai's message to the Israelites. We can worry about those later. The Lord's house needs our attention. Mark Dever, a pastor in Washington, D.C., captures it well. He says that the Lord is not condemning their comfortable living. He's condemning that it has come at expense of their devotion. Worship is to be top priority. Devotion is to be top priority. Obedience is to be top priority. That doesn't mean that other important things don't exist. Your relationships, your commitments, family, business and career, school, your activities, community involvement. There are plenty of important things. But what this passage calls us to realize is that each of those finds their appropriate place inside of our worship. They're not rival priorities. As a follower of Jesus Christ, you have one priority, and that is to glorify Him. Everything else fits inside of that. How does this passage point us to the gospel? If the Lord is worthy, how does Haggai 1, 1 through 1-11, remind us of Jesus or point us to the gospel? How does he fulfill this for us? Let me give three pieces there. The first is this that the life of Jesus reminds us of the Lord's worth. I want to do this quickly, but I think it's worth pointing out. What's present in the field with the shepherds on the night that Jesus is born? A host of heavenly angels, right? There's a baby in a manger over in Bethlehem and out in some field somewhere, somewhere close, nearby a multitude of heavenly hosts show up because that baby in the manger is Yahweh Saba. He is literally laying in the manger commanding those angels. That's what's happening in the person of Jesus. Jesus is led out into the desert by Satan and he's tempted for 40 days. Satan knows that Jesus is Yahweh Saba. He says, you could throw yourself off of here and do what? Command the angels to catch you. You could literally call the hosts of heaven to your aid because you are the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. Jesus is arrested in the garden and as that group comes to take him captive, one of Jesus' followers pulls a sword out and he slices the ear off of one of the would-be captors and Jesus bends down and he puts that ear back on and he looks at his captors and he says, you come out here with... Clubs and swords. Don't you know that I could command legions of angels right now? And I could put an end to this. Who's present at the tomb? Rolled that stone away when the women show up to anoint Jesus' body with spices. A couple of angels. Who do you think called him there? The dead man inside the tomb who is now alive. Who is Yahweh Saba, the Lord of hosts, that's how worthy he is. Not of our passive indifference, but of passionate devotion. And as if that wasn't enough, his ministry models what that passionate devotion should entail. Jesus' life was dedicated to the Father's will. He not only avoided every available sin of commission, but he also avoided every available sin of omission and indifference. He was laser-focused on all that the Lord wanted him to do, so it drove him to preach the kingdom boldly. It compelled him to heal those who were sick. It consumed his life with a longing to do the work of the Father. Jesus literally says, it is my food to do the will of the Father. That's passionate devotion. His death displays what passionate devotion demands. Ultimately, Jesus' devotion to the Lord's glory led him to the cross. He humbly gave himself, all of himself, to the Father's will. More than anything else, passionate devotion to the Lord is about humbly committing ourselves to do what he commands. We see that sort of passion in Christ on the cross. His act there at Calvary provides the model for how we are to live, his death provides the template for what a life of passionate devotion entails. It's about laying down our selfish desires and taking up and being dedicated to obedience and service to the Lord. Jesus not only models that on the cross, he also called it to us in his teaching. We don't have time to look at it in depth, but jot down Matthew 16, 24 to 28. That's the passage where Jesus says that as a follower of his, you are to take up your cross and walk after him cross crucifies our passive indifference. There's nothing passive about Jesus on the cross. He's there for the glory of the Lord and the good of humanity. It was obedience that led Him there, and it was obedience that held Him there on the cross. The cross fuels our passionate devotion. A total commitment to the will of the Lord is what led Jesus to His death. Taking up our cross is to be that kind of committed to Him. The good news of the gospel is that not only does Jesus' very being and his ministry and his death provide a model for what passionate devotion should look like his death and his resurrection provide the grace and the strength necessary to live it out the same grace that brings you into the kingdom of god is also capable of sustaining your life within it the same grace that saved you is the grace that provides fuel for your devotion The same grace that it is that has regenerated you and made you new is the grace that makes it so that when you see indifference in your life and you call it out, the Holy Spirit is available to bring to life within you devotion. That's the good news of the gospel. That's the truth of Jesus Christ, that His life and His ministry and His death are all about what it is to live in response to the fact that the Lord is Worthy. So what do we do with that today? Twice in this passage, Haggai calls the people to think carefully. It's going to occur four times in the book of Haggai, but two of them are right here in the first 11 verses. We must think carefully about our indifference and about our devotion. The first time that Haggai uses that phrase is in verse 5. Now the Lord of armies says this, think carefully about your ways. That's a call for them to be reflective. Consider your ways. Identify your areas of indifference. Let me provide a little bit of a framework for that. Over the course of last year, uh, we walked through some clarifying uh, terms about what it is that we're trying to do here as a church. We want to build devoted followers of Jesus Christ who are gospel centered, humbly unified, pursuing holiness, mission driven, and disciple making. That that's Those are five big categories of what it looks like to follow Jesus in a devoted, passionate sort of way. So sit down. Take some time to think carefully. Where is there indifference inside of you? Where are there places of indifference within you in terms of how it is that you center your life on the gospel? Are there areas of indifference in terms of how it is that you're unified, not just with this local body of believers, but with the church globally? Is Presence on a Sunday morning mostly just about convenience, or is it about commitment to the body of Christ? Are you serving somewhere? Do you give? Or when someone starts to talk about that, probably me because I'm usually the talking head up here, do you tune out and think about other things because you don't want someone to tell you how to live your life? What about sin in your life? When the Holy Spirit convicts you of sin, do you immediately move toward indifference about that? Well, I mean, I'm better than so and so. It's not really that bad. Or is there a true grief over that in your heart? That you've done something to transgress Yahweh Saba, and that grieves you. What about your commitment to the expansion of the gospel? Are you indifferent about the fact that there are people all around you in your neighborhood and in this community, maybe at your place of work, who've maybe heard the gospel before but have never received God's grace by faith in Jesus Christ and that that means that what awaits them in eternity is a separation from Him, does that move you or are you indifferent about it? Are you passionate about the fact or are you indifferent about the fact that there are peoples the world over who maybe have not heard the gospel or have no means by which they could hear the gospel and the Lord might be stirring you to be the means by which that happens? But God's not interested in our excuses. And if we're honest with ourselves, most of our excuses for our indifference are pretty lame anyway. We say things like, I don't really have time. Really? What does your Netflix history have to say about that? Once a week, if you've got an iPhone, when it kicks out that little screen time report, what does your screen time report have to say about whether or not you've actually got time to be devoted to the Lord? If you're A young person in here, probably a young male person. What does your gaming history have to say about how much time you've actually got? Is it that you don't have time or you're indifferent about the time? Which one is it? Sometimes when it comes to really pursuing the Lord and being engaged in Scripture and wanting to know God and the truth of the gospel, we say things like, I just don't really like to read. Really? How are all those articles about the NFL draft last week? How are all those blogs about updating your house? It's not that you don't like to read. It's that you're indifferent about this particular item of reading. And we need to think carefully about that. But we also need to think carefully so we can cultivate responses of devotion. Look at verse 7. The Lord of armies says this. Think carefully about your ways. This time he wants them to think going forward. Look at how easy it is. Go up into the hills, bring down the lumber, and build the house of the Lord. I will be pleased and I will be glorified. Literally, the wood is right there. You can walk out of your finely furnished home, look up into the hills, and see the lumber. Just go and get it and bring it down and build the house. It is that easy. Think carefully. You don't even have to think very hard because you know what it is right now to be obedient. You know what it would be to go and get that. We make following Jesus so hard and it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be. If you've spent much time in and around the church, you know what it is to have a life that's centered on the gospel. You at least know intellectually what it's supposed to look like. The problem is that your heart's not passionate about it. Your affections need to be stirred by Jesus constantly. We need to look to the cross, receive grace, have the Holy Spirit convict us of those things, and then rely on His power to help us walk in a different direction. We know that we should be sharing the gospel and pursuing sanctification in our life. We know that we should be making disciples of the people around us, right? James 4, 17. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and does not do it sins. We don't need more Bible studies. You don't really need more of me talking up here on Sunday mornings. You just need to go up into the hills, get the lumber, and build the house. It really is that easy. Think carefully about your areas of indifference. Allow the Holy Spirit to convict those, to bring them to light, and then think carefully about cultivating responses of devotion. George Whitfield says this. This is where I want to end. Nothing is more generally known than our duties which belong to Christianity, and yet, how amazing it is, nothing is less practiced. Think carefully about your indifference, Haggai says to the people of Israel. Your houses are paneled and roofed and finely furnished and well-appointed, and the house of the Lord over there lies in ruins. Think carefully. This morning when you came in, we sang, take my life and let it be all for you and for your glory. We sang that so I could make this point. When we sang all, what did you mean? Take my life and let it be all for my house and for its furnishing. Take my life and let it be all for my bank account and its size. Take my life and let it be all for my career and its progression. Take my life and let it be all for my kids and their happiness. Take my life and let it be all for my comfort and its insulating. Or did you actually mean take my life and let it be all for you and for your glory? Jesus repeats from Deuteronomy. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind in all your strength. There's no room for indifference there. All means all. Haggai calls his people to reject passive indifference toward the things of God and to return to the work of the Lord with a devotion that is passionately committed to his glory. And the call is the same for us today. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray and then we'll close our time in worship. God, thank you for this morning. Lord, thank you for the reminder that it's so easy for us to slip our way into indifference. Lord, and yet you've given us in Jesus Christ not only a model of what passionate devotion to you looks like, but also access into the strength and into the grace necessary to walk in that kind of passionate devotion. Lord, I pray whatever kind of tiny little ember might exist inside of us of passion for your glory, Lord, that your Holy Spirit this morning would pour gasoline on that, and that we would be people who burn with a fire for your glory, who burn with a passion for your name and for your fame. God, would that bleed its way into the way that we structure our lives? Would it influence the way it is that we commit to the local and the global body of believers? Would it influence how passionate we are in our disgust for our own sin, God, would that flame inside of us cause us to be passionate about the proclamation of the gospel and invested in the making of disciples? Lord, would your Holy Spirit illuminate and convict us of our areas of indifference and then vomit them out of us? Literally just spit them out of our lives, Lord, we pray, and help us to walk In obedience and in your grace and in your passion and in your Holy Spirit, Lord, so that we live lives that are devoted to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And you can stand up, let's sing.